Okay, so we're at the end of the upper room discourse, and we're starting chapter 17 in John. Jesus had left the building in ch- at the end of chapter 14. Remember, he left, and then he, and then he gives us um, the last I am, which I am the vine, as they're walking by the temple and they're seeing the beautiful vine there. Um, he has bequeathed his disciples with love and joy in the discourse that we've studied already. But lastly, in this last verse in chapter 16, he gives them something that they're really going to need and something that we need today, and that is peace. So let's just turn to John 16, verse 33, um, because this is the last word that he spoke to his disciples before he went to the cross. The other words we're going to study today, he's not speaking to them. He's speaking to his father. So John 16, 33 kind of is summing up this whole discourse. And he says, I have said these things to you, all these things, starting in the end of chapter 13, all the way up. And it says that you may have peace, that you may have peace. In the world, you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. So these things I've spoken to you, like I said, he wants them to know that in all of this, two things. He's offering them peace, and he's promising them tribulation. <laughs> but he says something so important here, and that is that he's overcome. Whatever's about to happen, whatever's going to go down this night, the denial, the betrayal, all of it, the beating, the scourging, all of it, He's telling them, I have overcome. And this is a word that John only uses three times in his gospel, but uses like 44 turns, like it's his new, it becomes his new favorite word. In his epistles and revelation, it's all over there. Overcome, overcome. I have overcome. So first of all, he says that you may, in me, you may have peace. Okay, now I just, <laughs> this is just so kind of funny because Jesus is the one that's about going to the cross. The disciples are all going to be fine. So who is promising who, what? (laughs) It's kind of an interesting turn of events. Um, He made the offer at the most unlikely circumstances. At this very minute, Judas was betraying him. Um, Jesus knew that he would be arrested, forsaken, rejected, mocked, humiliated, tortured, and executed before the end of the next day. We think that the disciples might should have been comforting him. However, it was Jesus who had the peace. And not only did he have the peace, he had enough to give it to them, to offer it out. Now, he didn't promise it. He offered it. Um, you, you may have peace. People may follow Jesus, um, yet deny themselves this peace. We gain the peace that he offered by finding it. Where should we find it? Look in that verse. Where is it? It's in him. It's in him. Um, That's where the peace is. Jesus said that in me you may have peace. And let me just tell you, we are not, if we've not said this a million times in this study before, are going to find peace anywhere in this crazy world but in Jesus Christ. Um, In the world you're going to have tribulation. Jesus promises tribulation. Peace Uh, Tribulation is a promise deal. When we become Christians, sometimes we think everything should go our way. (laughs) That's not what Jesus is saying. 
in the world, you're going to have tribulation. And he's just told them. And you guys need to go back and really read the rest of uh, chapter 15 and all of 16 if you haven't done so. Because that's setting us up for what's happening right now. But, but he, and he said to them, in the, I'm not taking you out of the world. I'm, you're going to be left in the world. Because, see, you're going to be my messengers. You're gonna, I'm the sent one, and I'm going to make you the sent one. This is what this prayer is all going to be about in just a few minutes. So um, be of good cheer. Um, I have overcome the world. Jesus proclaimed the truth of his victory. This was an amazing statement from a man that's just about to be executed. <laughs> Judas, the, relig- the religious authorities, Pilate, the crowd, the soldiers, or even death in the grave is not going to overcome him. Instead, Jesus could say, I have overcome the world. This is true then, and this is true now. The statement that he makes in the shadow of the cross is not the statement of a victim. It's a statement of a conqueror. I have overcome the world. Despite what you might see, and again, let's go back to something that John's been talking about. Jesus, all through his gospel, is saying, This is what you're doing. This is what I want you to do. I want you to think not physically what you see. I want you to know by faith what truly is. What is the spiritual realm? Because that is the most important thing. Um, So he says, be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. The world conquers me. Let me just say this. When it comes between me and God. When it fills my desires, when it absorbs my energies, when it blinds my eyes to the things that are unseen and eternal. That's what McLaren wrote. Knowing that Jesus has overcome the world gives us good cheer. It's the foundation of our peace. When we see that Jesus, despite the circumstances, is in control. And when he leaves, he's not abandoning We see that he loves us and he's given us great victory so we can be of good cheer. Now, Warren Wearsby, and this is going to be in your homework or in your pursuit questions. I can't remember which one. He says something so interesting here that I just had. This is such a good little counseling tidbit that I I have to quote it for you. Christ is trying to teach his disciples the principle of transforming circumstances instead of rescuing us from unpleasantness. Jesus is working on their coping skills. (laughs) This is a big deal for a counselor. (laughs) He is redirecting their thinking, not their circumstances. The way of substitution for solving problems is the way of immaturity. The way of transformation is the way of faith and maturity. We cannot mature emotionally or spiritually if someone is always replacing our toys. Now, I love that because you can see that when you're with kids, you know. And, you know, I know even when, when you're dealing with the elderly, redirection is your, is your best friend. It's just your best friend. But he's saying, I want you to be, I don't just want you to say, oh, no, look, look over here. I want you to realize that you've got to change that the change is going to be inside. Paul says this his own way when he says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That is the same kind of deal. 
not the circumstances. We're all about the circumstances, lady. We are all about this. And he is all about this. Because this is real, the, where the real work is, okay, the, in the spiritual realm. John MacArthur records, significantly, Jesus' last words to his disciples in the upper room before praying for them were words of love, faith, and hope. In the face of their greatest trial in the next few days, the Lord reminded them of these three foundational truths, truths that would subsequently mark their ministries for the rest of their lives and also mark the saints that follow them. Having done all he could to prepare them for what was about to take place, Jesus now turned in prayer to the Father, knowing that only the Father could protect his disciples in these next few hours. So we're going to really study this high priestly prayer. John 17, in the 1500s, it became known as the high priestly prayer. Jesus, we know, is our high priest, and we'll get to some verses there in a minute. But the theme of this upper root, the discourse, finds its conclusion in this prayer, um, and that is not by accident. Um, It's interesting, this prayer, again, I know I keep saying this, it seems like this is the apex, it's like, but I have to tell you that John Knott, you know, the reformer, Scottish reformer, amazing guy, rebuked, you know, all of the Queen, Queen Mary, you know, just, you know, kind of an amazing guy. On his deathbed, he asked his wife to read him John 17, where he said, I cast my first anchor. And almost his last words show how much his mind dwelt on this chapter with its implications for the troubled church of God, the spouse of Christ, despised by the world, but yet so precious in his sight. That was John Knox's final words. And they were, he was like, let me just read this prayer yet one more time. This prayer is so relevant to us. And, um, but let me just introduce what a high priest is. This is something that all Jews at this century knew, but we don't really know. The high priest, if you go back and start reading in Leviticus, oh, that's a, that's a hot spot in the Bible. <laughs> if you read Leviticus, you will understand that the high priest was given, um, was the mediator between the people of Israel and God. Aaron and his descendants were appointed priests. Uh, The tribe of Levi served as assistants in the tabernacle. The Levites were viewed as belonging to God. They were his. They didn't get, by the way, they didn't get a parcel of land, the Levite. The tribe of Levi, they didn't get because they were belonging to the temple. Um, They were set apart. The priests were set apart, holy. They were holy. Specific regulations for the priests can be found in Leviticus 21 and 22. The high priest was the chief religious leader, and he had certain duties in the Old Testament. Among those duties were wearing the Urim and Thummim, who were assisted in determining God's will. I want you to remember that because this is Jesus is now our high priest. So where are we going to find God's will? Mm-mm. It would be in him, right? So interesting. So uh, it was the high priest, though, his big job, most important job, was it was he that went into the most holy place on the day of atonement, which is Yom Kippur. Only the high priest was allowed to enter, and before doing so, he was required to make a sacrifice for himself. 
so that he would be holy enough to go into the Holy of Holies so that he could then, in fact, give the sacrifice for the people of Israel. So in this way, the high priest was cleansed and could then go in to offer the cleansing sacrifices for the people. So I want to tell you that Jesus is now your high priest. And he's about to pray this prayer, but I want you to see that this is, he is our mediator. He is the one that ripped the veil so that we could go into the holies of holies. Um, let me give you some good, great verses. Read these later. Um, Romans 8:34. Who then is to condemn us? Jesus Christ is the one who died. More than that, who was raised and who is at the right hand of God, who is interceding for us. I just that that just has really been something that the Holy Spirit has just really gelled with me this week that that my name is on Jesus's lips and Megan's name is on Jesus lips as this crazy week is happening he is praying for you and that is something that could just we should think of this in traffic ladies this would change our viewpoint um let me get to some uh, Hebrews the whole book of Hebrews um is a lot about how Jesus is our high priest and how Jesus has, is the fulfillment of all the Old Testament prophecies um, and all the tabernacle and all the Levitical law, how Jesus is the fulfillment of that. Um, so part of that, I'm going to read you a couple of verses from Hebrews. Hebrews 6, 19 and 20 says, We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor for the soul a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, that's the Holy of Holies, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Hebrews 7, 24 and 25 and 27 says, but he holds this priesthood permanently because he continues forever. So Jesus is holding this priesthood right now Forever, This is something he's doing right now. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. That's just a beautiful thing. Your faith is Jesus' answered prayer. So, just think about that. That's such a great thought. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. And then Hebrews 10, 19 through 22 says, Therefore, brothers, since we have this confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by this new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have this great priest over the house of God, what's our job? What is our job? Here's our job. Let us draw near with a heart full of assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. If that's not a good definition of bite, I just don't know what is. I mean, I'm just saying John is bringing all these things to life. Um, So John MacArthur says that this prayer also forms a transition between Jesus and his earthly ministry 
and then his heavenly ministry of intercession, because that's what Jesus is up to. Um, the book of Hebrews re reveals the rich theological truths regarding the Lord's intercessory work as a mediator of this new covenant. But here in John, we have a personal glimpse of him as this role of high priest that is interceding for his people. This prayer, in fact, is often called, as we mentioned before, the high priestly prayer of Christ. So let me give you an outline for the prayer. There's three parts of the outline. In verses 1 through 5, Jesus prays for himself. In six, verses 6 through 19, Jesus prays for his disciples. These are the people in the room. And then, verses 20 through 26, Jesus prays for the church. That's us. So first of all, he prays for himself in 1 through 5. The theme is glory. Um, Melakathion, who is one of the early church fathers, I think, said, there is no voice which had, has ever been heard, neither in heaven or in earth, more exalted, more holy, more fruitful, more sublime than the prayer offered up by the Son to God himself. The sentences are simple, but the ideas are deep and moving and thoughtful. So um, as we unpack this, I just feel, let's just pray one more time. Father, we just ask um, in humility, Father, that you would teach us each one of us, Father, what this prayer means to each, to each of us in our, in our different circumstances. And, Father, that your truth would become real. Your Holy Spirit would guide us into this truth. And, Father, that we would be able to live in you, abide in you, and be one with you uh, in such a way that would bring you and evidently us joy. In Jesus' name, amen. So Jesus prays. Um, this is Jesus' innermost thoughts, because that's what prayer reveals. And let me just tell you, sometimes you have people that want, this is probably never happens to you, but as a guidance counselor, this happens to me all the time. People always want to tell you about their problems. Is that not happening to you? So here's the deal. Sometimes we need to skip right to the prayer. Um, I just think there's something beautiful about praying for somebody. And I think we should use every bit of technology we have to do this. And um, I had this one gal and she was, uh, uh, I was, I, you know, I was just on the phone. I'm like, I can't come to your house by now, right now, but I can certainly pray with you. And it just changed the whole tenor of our conversation. Um, and I feel like sometimes that's what, what Jesus did. We need to do more frequently. Um, because there is, we are, we cannot be anything but transparent, hopefully, when we pray to him. Um, and if that's not seen by the people that we're praying with and for, um, then something is gravely wrong. But sometimes we just cut to the chase is kind of where I'm saying with that. Okay. Um, we need to talk less and pray more. And every time we pray, it, let me just tell you, it factors God back into the equation of whatever we're doing. You know, remember algebra where you factor everything? Okay. Sometimes we factor God out. And prayer, you can't pray without putting him right back where he needs to be. And again, and as he gets there, we realize that it's not about him coming along with my will, but it's really about me coming along with his will. 
And uh, so that's something we're going to talk about. So let me read uh, John 17, 1 through 5. This is the part where Jesus is praying for himself. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven. He said, glorify your son that your son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you've given him. And this is the eternal life that you that they know you, the only true God and that Jesus Christ in whom you sent. I have glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Okay, let me just mention that there's a whole lot of this prayer that you realize that Jesus and God and God and Jesus are the same. There's a quality here because Jesus is God. Jesus can't say glorify me because what glorification is when we give it all to him. So, and we know that God does not give his glory. You know, he does not share his glory. But the fact that Jesus is saying glorify me is they're all one. Okay. Um, Clearly, this prayer is not an inferior to a superior. You can see in this prayer that they are one. They are the same. Um, The two have one mind. Where the son speaks, he is not seeking to bend the father to him. He is voicing instead the purpose of the Godhead, Trench says. So John MacArthur reports, in addressing this prayer to his father, Jesus emphasized the intimate fellowship he shared with God. That kind of personal, familial relationship with God was completely foreign to the Jews of that day. Let me just say, we said this last week or the week before, they wouldn't even say God's name lest they take it in vain. Okay? So they, they, they had code. They had code for God. <laughs> um, so he says to them, Father, Father, because he's, and guess what? We can say Father. We can even say Abba, Father. Um, but that's a whole other thing. He says, the hour has come. Now, I'm just saying, Jesus, this is, it's about time. <laughs> if you think about that, that's a pun. Um, Jesus had said all through John, it's not my time, it's not my time, it's not my time. If you look in your homework, you can read all those. Um, It's not my time, it's not my... But then he comes to when he is about to um, wash their feet, he says it's time. That's in John 13, 1. And then John 17, 1, he says it again. The hour has come. God, you have to know, God is free. One of the definitions of eternality of God is that... The past, present, and future are equally vivid for him, but also that God is freed from the succession of time. God is outside of time. So when we need to get more of that, because we are totally under this oppression of time, which we put ourselves under. We are, as Americans, the busiest people on the entire planet about nothing. Um, and, And Jesus is... Lived his life, walked everywhere. He didn't, he didn't have a little scooty, you know. He walked everywhere he needed to go, and he got there in time. Because his time clock was God's time clock. And let me just say, uh, Psalm 31, 14, and 50 says, But I trust in you, O Lord. I say, you are my God. My times are in your hand. Isn't that lovely? 
Ecclesiastes 3, you know this one, 1, and then I'm just going to jump to 11. For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. God's got time on so many levels. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. There's something you can think about also. John MacArthur says this unfolding drama of redemptive history has reached its apex right now. It's time. Plans have, that were made in eternity past were finding their culmination in time. Old Testament prophecies were being fulfilled. The serpent's head would be bruised. The suffering servant of Isaiah 53 was, would be pierced through for our transactions, transgressions and crushed for our iniquities so that by his stripes we would be healed. This was the hour when the shadows of the, new, of the Old Testament sacrifices would give way to the glorious reality of the Lamb of God. This is the hour of Christ's triumph over the prince of the world and the kingdom of darkness. It was this climactic hour that God, when God, through Christ's sacrifice, will defeat sin, death, and Satan and redeem his people for himself. This is the hour. He says, Father, the hour has come. Um, Remember, he just said one verse back, I have overcome. You have to realize that even though if we look on this drama and we say this is all bad, 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 Jesus is looking on this drama and saying this is all good, 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 because he's looking at it from a totally different perspective. And ladies, he tries to get us to look at it from the same perspective that he has. John 12, 31 and 33 says, now is judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. Colossians 2, 14 and 15 says, By canceling the record of debt, he stood against us with its legal demands. He set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and the authorities, and he put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Hebrews 2, 14 and 15 says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who had the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all of those through fear of death that were subject to lifelong slavery. So I just want you to realize that this is what Jesus is thinking. This is not what the disciples are thinking at all. But he is coming as an overcomer about to gain entrance and to provide the sacrifice that he was slain, ladies, where? Before the foundation of the world. He's about to reclaim this, and he's going forth in victory. And you, I just have to tell you, this is what he's seeing. And next week, we're going to study this. We're going to study how he's king, but not of this world. And he's savior. What does that mean? That's next week. 
Um, no, that's two weeks, because next week we're taking off. Okay, so first of all, he says, verse 1, glorify your son, that your son may glorify you. Now, I'm just saying that Jesus is not saying glorify your son like I need, like I need glory. Glorify your son. He's participating in the glory. And the glorifying the son as the son is glorifying you is all about him going to the cross. Because that was what was going to glorify God the Father. So this is, this is not Jesus saying, oh, please, you know, he's not a middle school teenager saying, could you give me a compliment? No, that's not where we are here. <laughs> it's a little bit bigger than that, okay? So since glorification is seen at the cross, it's a prayer, rather, that God's, the Father's will would be done in him. Um, there's shades of the Gethsemane in this prayer as well. Um, glory is mentioned five times in this five verses. So let's talk about glory for a second. Uh, what is glory? Glory, Piper, John Piper says that the glory of God is the infinite beauty and greatness of his manifold perfections. So if you took all of God's attributes, all the omnis, all of his goodness, his grace, his mercy, all of that, and you threw it all together, you're about to approach the glory of God. Um, it's important that we understand glory because glory is our prime directive. Um, uh, the Westminster Catechism says, what is the chief end of man? The chief end of man is to give glory to God and enjoy him forever. Uh, Jesus had his prevailing focus has always been in glorifying God. And how did he do that? By following God's directions. Okay. He calls them commands. He calls them his will, but they're basically doing what the Father wants him to do. And this is very key because somehow we've missed this out, and we feel like as Christians today, we get to elect to do some of what God wants, and then some things we get to refuse. And I'm not just saying that this whole abiding concept, that's not part of it. It's all, are you in or are you out? That's kind of what Jesus is saying here. So he's in. Um, John Calvin writes, the world was no doubt made that it might be the theater for divine glory. So remember, glory was also one of the three themes of this whole upper room discourse. Glory, departure, love. Those are the three overwhelm, overarching themes. Verse 2, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. Um, first of all, Jesus has all authority. He says this at, right before he leaves in Matthew 28, 18. Jesus said to them, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples. So he, we know God has, Jesus has all authority. And he's talking about to all who you have given him. So five times in this prayer, the Lord refers to believers as a gift from the Father to him, and he says it in verses 2, 6, 9, and 24. So it's interesting because <laughs> Christians often think of Jesus as God's gift to us, which is true, John three sixteen, for God to love the world, that he gave his only begotten son. But we rarely think of ourselves as God's gift to Jesus. So I have a little present here. We're going to wrap it on a minute, okay? 
Verse 3, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you've sent. This word, know, is gnosko. We've studied this before. This is not just know about. This is intimate love relationship. John MacArthur records, the life that God predetermined to give the redeemed is a life of shared communion with him. Eternal life refers to the quality of life quality of life, not just the quantity. It's much more than living forever. It's enjoying intimate fellowship with God both now and forever. And I'm just telling you that the study of John, this really blew my doors off because I always thought eternal life was something happened when I died. And he's like, no, 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 no. Eternal life happens the moment you have become a believer. And he is now in this process of sanctification and he wants us so desperately to be in fellowship with him so that he can start conforming us to his son. Um, And this deep fellowship, this communion, we said that um, abiding was being in living communion with him. Um, This is something that he calls eternal life. Um, Okay. F.F. Bruce writes, nor is it the knowledge of a matter simply an uh, intellectual apprehension. It involves a personal relationship. The father and the son know each other in a mutuality of love. And by the knowledge of God, men and women are admitted to this mystery of divine love. Do you get your ticket? You get to come in to this love that he has. Unbelievable. Uh, and the, this, so, and this is, we're going to, he's going to be praying for this unity a bunch in this prayer. So verse four and five, I've glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now father glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. First of all, he's finished the work. Jesus, you know, Jesus is eternal. So remember we said this person, you know, that eternality is when, um, that the past, present, and future are equally vivid to you. <laughs> so he's like just jumping over that cross thing. Saying, you know, I Remember me, I was the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. He, in his head, has already done this because he was going to obey the Father, and he was going to lay his will down at Gethsemane, and he was going to bear the cross for us, for the joy set before him. He did. He endured the cross, despising his shame. Unbelievable. So he, uh, so again, he, it says there, <laughs> in a greater sense, the work was already finished, completed in the heart and the mind of God. Now it just had to be done. <laughs> just, a, just a small part. <laughs> so accomplish a work. What's the work? Second Corinthians uh, 5.21 says it best. It says, for our sake, He made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That we could have the fellowship that he dreamed about when he made Adam, when Adam turned his back against him, that he could have even better fellowship than that. That's what what he's come to do. So... um, uh, Tenney writes, this petition for a return back to his pristine glory implies immistakably his pre-existence and his equality with the Father. 
It confirms his claim that he and the Father truly are one. John Calvin wrote, who, He who glories in himself glories against God. So this shows that, that Jesus and God are one because basically he can't glory in himself apart from God. So, so that's the first, when we're doing the outline, that's the first part. Jesus prays for himself, verses 1 through 5. Now we'll get to Jesus prays for his disciples, them, those that are in the room, verses 6 through 19. And he's going to be praying for two things, for protection and for sanctification. So I'm going to read this to you, um, and then we'll break it apart as best as we can in as much time as we have. He says, I have manifested your name to the people that you gave me. You gave me, here's the giving part, out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me and have kept their word, and have kept them, and, and they have kept your word. Now they know everything that you have given me is from you, for I have given them the words that you gave me, and they've received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you. And they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those that you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine. And I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I am coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name which you've given me that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I'm coming to you, and the things that I speak in the world, that they may have, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of this world, just as I am not of this world. Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. As you have sent me into the world, so I send them into the world. And for their sakes, I consecrate myself that they may also be sanctified in truth. Okay, let's back up. He said, I have manifested your name to the men you've given me. Jesus thought about the three years of ministry, all of the things, the seven discourses we've talked about, the seven signs that we've talked about, the seven I am's. He's talking about the whole shebang of three he says these i have i have manifested i have not just explained your name i have displayed i have shown i have manifested who you really are before them he um trench says jesus lived out the love and the goodness and the righteousness and the grace and the holiness of god uh, of god the father he manifested god's name to them he revealed their nature. Remember, back in the prologue when we first started John, we said the first 17 verses of John 
where the prologue, and in them, he pretty much, it's the topic sentence that's going to tell you what the whole book of John is about. And the end of that topic sentence was John 1.18. It says, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten who is in the bosom of the Father has explained him. So I'm just saying right now he's saying, I've manifested. I've explained you. I've done your job. Jesus had finished the sentence that was started in the burning bush. I've said this before. Remember when God told Moses to deliver the children of Israel out of the hand of the Egyptians? He said, I can't do that. He says, yes, you can. I'm going to go with you. Well, who am I going to say? Who, who am I going to say is sending me? He says, I am that I am. God said, I am the, I am the self-existent one. So Jesus came to finish this sentence, and he said, and John reveals it so beautifully, he has said to them, I am that I am. I am the word of God. I am the lamb of God. I will give you the living water. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And at last, I am the vine, and soon... I'm going to be your high priest. I have manifested. We just have to honor him for that. Uh, with, apart from Jesus Christ, we would never know who God really is. He is. John reveals the revealer, remember? So he says, I have given them your word. And he, it's so interesting because Jesus, he, he's not merely the oral teaching, but the whole revelation of God is manifested in the acts and the personality and who Jesus is. He is the one that explained God. He is the fullness of God. Um, Spurgeon says, see how the Lord Jesus himself takes all his teaching from the Father. You will never hear from him any boast about being the originator of profound thoughts. No, he just repeated to his disciples the words that he received from his Father. I've given them the words which you have gave us me. If Jesus acted thus, wait for it, how much more we as messengers of, a, of God receive the word from the Lord's mouth and speak it as we receive it. We are to do exactly the same thing, speak those same words. And that's how we have this beautiful gospel that's been 2,000 years old now. 2,000 years old. They have believed, in verse 8, they said, they have believed that you sent me. One might say in these few verses, Jesus looked at salvation from two points of view. And this is so interesting because you hear a lot of, you see a lot of election. John loves about, the, you know, that this whole election deal, you know, that you called you. But in this, we see both of them. It says, each perspective is true from its point of view. In John 17, 6, explains that their salvation in the, is in the election of God. The men that you have given me out of the world. And he's seeing this from God's point of view. And then in John 17, 8, it explains the salvation of their faith that they believe that you sent me, seeing it from our point of view, our human responsibility. That's one of your little topics today to talk about. Uh, verse 10, it says, All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. In themselves, nothing. But with him, everything. Um, the Apostle Paul understood this later because he used phrases 
Christ in you, the hope of glory. Um, God works in us from glory to glory, just as the spirit of the Lord moves in 2 Corinthians 3.18. No one other than Jesus could be glorified in the believers. Let me just say, that's a big deal. Because right now you see a lot of leaders that are, they're grabbing glory here. And I, I'm a little nervous about that. Um, I feel that our world, because... <laughs> It's fallen. And one of them, I think it was Swindoll, said this probably 35 years ago. He said that the church of Jesus Christ doesn't have to be what the church of Jesus Christ is supposed to be. It just has to be 10% better than the world. And I think that is so true. <laughs> so as the world goes, the church of Jesus Christ has gone downhill in what we think, a lot of it. And that's why we need to cling to these words that are in Scripture that keep us straight and true and, on, and right. Um, but we see a lot of self-glorification going on in the churches today. Um, a lot of leaders think that it's all about them. And they're all about trying to get God to come along and bless whatever crazy idea they might have. And they may be great ideas. Don't get me wrong. But they might not be God's ideas. And we know even having a great idea like the kinship, the kingship of Jesus is a great idea. But it's a really bad idea if it's the wrong time for it. So only God can orchestrate all this. So um, I'm a little nervous. Uh, Christopher Morgan writes, <laughs> the irony of all of this is striking. As humans, we have all refused to acknowledge God's glory and instead have sought our own glory. In doing so, we have forfeited the glory God intended for us as his image bearers. Thankfully, God does not completely eradicate humanity for such cosmic treason. I love that sentence. <laughs> because he has every right to, but he doesn't. Instead, he graciously begins the restoration process. So let me just tell you, when we, it's about glory, it should be about his glory. And Christ in me is the hope of glory. It's not my glory. It's never going to be my glory. Every, all the glory belongs to him. And ladies, one day when we see him as he is, it will become obvious that all the glory belongs to him. And until then, we faith what we can't see. We faith it. But we know that that is the truth. Um, okay, verse 11. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you gave me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. Um, we need Jesus as our intercessor. He says, I, to pray for us. We need, he prays to God the Father to keep us. He's still praying that. Let me just say, um, the world, the flesh, the devil are so mighty, so pervasive, and so seductive that we would never keep ourselves in our own efforts. If we stay with Jesus, it's because Jesus prayed for us. Father, keep them. Um, keep them in unity with me. This is such a beautiful passage, and I almost want to say that here's Jesus, and he's, he's trying to communicate with them that he and the Father, pretend this is the Father, this is very inadequate, but we're, pretend my coat is the Father, and we are one. We are one. And, and, and you get, it's a package deal, okay? And then you have Jesus, okay, and Jesus... God gave Jesus a present, okay? So let's, what's in the present? Let's look and see. 
Um, what's in the present is, oh, here we go. Lisa is in the present and Landy is in the present. Debbie's in the present. You're all in the present. And this is the present that we have right here. And this present, all of us were given to Jesus by God the Father. And so, Jesus keeps us. Okay? So when you think of Satan trying to get you, he's got to get through a lot of things to get to you. Because you, you are the gift. And he holds us so tightly to his chest. He's praying for us. He's praying, keep them. Keep them. And then he's about to pray, sanctify them. Okay, But I just have to tell you, you are so precious to him. You are just as precious. The best present that you've ever been given, this is way better than that. So, okay, so we have that. So I just want to give you that picture. Now, he goes on to say that they would be one even as we are one, that we would keep them all together. Verse 13, now I am on my way to thee, but I say this while I'm still in the world so that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. Jesus has talked a lot about joy. Um, joy is, joy comes from, honestly, from abiding. When we're in him, he gives us his joy. He's got joy. Now, yes, he's the suffering savior. Don't get me wrong. There's a, that part. But Jesus is joyful. And why is Jesus joyful? Because his joy is rooted in unbroken fellowship with God his Father. They're happy. They're joyful. Their joy is bigger and better than you can ever believe. And guess what? We get to, when we get in line with this, when we are tucked in, we have joy too. We have his joy. Not happiness, joy. Um, okay, let me move along. Verses 17 through 19, he says, Sanctify them in truth, your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I send them into the world. For their sake I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. Okay, what does the word sanctify? Sanctify is a root word, uh, hagios, which means set apart for a holy purpose or a separate purpose or a special purpose. Um, it could be God's special pleasure. It could be for his use. It implies holiness um, and being set apart from the corruption of the world. Uh, it's also hmm, devoted to, devoted to God. Uh, it could be things. It could be animals, sacrificial, sacrificial animals. It could be men for his service. But he's saying sanctify these in truth. Your word is truth. Um, this process is the keeping process. Um, this is, he's not left us alone. He is sanctifying us. Um, when we believe, we are justified. This is Theology 101. <laughs> There's three parts of salvation. The first one is justification. That's when you believe. The second part is sanctification. That's him conforming you to the image of Jesus Christ, which he starts the moment that you were born again. And he will finish. It says uh, in Philippians 1, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. And then the last thing is glorification. That's when we get our new bodies that don't have flesh. 
that's like amen to that, ladies. That'll, that's the day, okay, on that day. So, um, so he's saying sanctify, set them apart from me. I want them, help them to be conformed to my image, okay? This is that sanctification. Sanctify them by what? Your truth. The, sanctif- the dynamic behind sanctification is truth. The word of God, read, heard, understood, applied. This is truth. The word of God, the commands of God, which we know from last week is really the essence, the will of God. This is what we need to be basking in. This is the truth. Spurgeon says, and this is so interesting, the more truth you believe, the more sanctified you will be. The operation of truth upon the mind is to separate the man from the world unto the service of God. That's the best definition I have of sanctification. When when you pull away, you're crucified with Christ, you deny yourself, you take up your cross, you separate, and you are now there for the service of God. Um, Because you've got to realize that Jesus is about to die. These 11 men, plus whoever else were there, we're going to be the hope of the world. And he had to make sure that they got it right. Because <laughs> there was only 11. Think of the thousands of people that had heard Jesus. How many? 5,000 he fed. But these were it. These were the ones. These were the gift. Okay? These, these were the ones he was like, okay, okay. God, help them. Sanctify them. So you and me, okay, so then he goes on to say, as, okay, I lost my place. Okay, for their sakes, I sanctify myself. Uh, As both priest, altar, and sacrifice, Christ from the womb to the tomb, he consecrated himself. He was the sacrifice. He sacrificed, he was the sacrifice, he was the altar, he was it all. And he will be our high priest. So then the last bit is Jesus prays for the church in 20 and 28. And the theme is unity. And I want you to see this so carefully because this is so important. John 20, 20 through 26. I do not ask for these only, but for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. That they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. So this is God's ultimate plan here, is that we, because we're the ones that have heard through the disciples, that we would be one together with him, and we would do this in such a way that the world gets it. The world that doesn't get it right now. Because, and honestly, are we really one? Are we, are we tucked in? Are we, are we tucked in with not just him, but with each other, because it's our unity that is supposed to be. It says right here, it says for our, God's, that I, you are in me, I in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, and you, I just want you to think about abide as I read this, okay? 
I and them, you and me, that they may be perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you love me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you've given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these things, uh, and these know you that have know that you sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known, so that the love which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. So F.F. Bruce writes, the unity for which he prays is a unity of love. It is, in fact, their participation in the unity of love, which subsists eternally between the God and the Father and the Son, so that all would recognize that you are disciples of mine. Remember, he said that just chapter ago. That's the way they're going to know you're my disciples, by the love you have for one another. Their manifest oneness in love would give public confirmation both of their relationship with Jesus and of his with the Father. And um, it says, and that the glory that you've given me, I've given to them. This is the same unity. If the Father is in him and he is in them, then the Father is in them and they are drawn into what F.F. Bruce says is the very life of God. And this life of God is God's perfect love. So this is something that we can think about, um, ladies. When you wake up in the middle of the night and you're pond- you can't go back to sleep, think about this. How I can be in him, he can be in me, and that we're all to be in this together. And all this is really about love. Um, so he goes on to say, um, and this is, let me close with this. O oh, righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these things that you have sent, and... And that these know you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. F.F. Um, F. Bruce writes, in the closing words, the prayer is summed up. By worldly standards of success, Jesus had little to show for his mission. He had come to make the Father known, but the vast majority of the hearers refused the knowledge that he offered them. The merest handful of men and women, a very unimpressive company at that, had recognized him as the one sent by God. Yet to them, his mission on earth was confidently entrusted as he dedicated to them, to the Father, to the end. I am with you. I am with you. Better still, he says, I am in you. Now then, go forth, he goes forth, Jesus goes forth to his final and fullest manifestation of the Father's love and glory. He sets his eye to the cross.